0: and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today, delighted to be joined by a lady who, when you work in our sector of coaching leadership, you will come across a name on a number of occasions. And I did a LinkedIn sprint with her. And when we were in that LinkedIn sprint, other people were recommending her and then found out that she's got connections to Michael Bogdian-Stanier as a friend and a contact of mine. And there's a piece in here about that she's almost, in some ways, the coach's coach. She's got a background and experience in coaching. She's got very clear and concise opinions around coaching, which I love and I share. um, And you'll hear those today. But also, she's got a story that's well worth listening to and and hearing. And there's a particular piece when she gets into today around her second book, um, which really brought home to me something about the accidental alpha. And when you hear that story and hear the, the piece that a lot of us get into this space, and she talks on the gender side and women, but I was resonating as we were going through. So delighted that she was able to join us today. You will love the conversation, you'll love the lady. And here's Karen Wright. What I'm fascinated about is that you're one of the people who consistently gets recommended for me to talk to or for people to go to on coaching. I'm always fascinated about how that's come about. So maybe just give a bit of an introduction about how you got into coaching and how that's come about.
1: Oh my gosh. I got into coaching because there was a large hole where my corporate career used to be. (laughs) 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 So I I had a career in consumer packaged goods marketing. At one point, uh, a British colleague of mine actually referred to my career as a specialist in the grazing habits of the North American male because lovely over the course of the, my first sort of 10 or 12 years in consumer packaged goods i had worked on you know chips and salty snacks beer chocolate bars chewing gum <laughs> so
0: yep i'm there
1: <laughs> right and so you know uh, that this particular british colleague sort of connected the dots and said well clearly you have a lane <laughs>
0: that's right not maybe a lane you really want to go down though because that you know i'm i'm gonna get a bit feisty when i'm having at the moment i'm giving up chocolate crisps or chips um uh, and beer so i'm giving up and i am uh, you know slightly grumpy i think is as i go through it yeah so
1: well you know i like to think i was in the joy business frankly but in any event I was working for Frito-Lay. Yeah, okay. As I was leading all of their new product development which I adored and I had do- had new product and new business development roles prior to that. But this was this was perfect. It was a company that was really about fun and innovation and bringing sort of, you know, entertaining things into people's lives. And it was part of Pepsi, is part of Pepsi, so a big international network. And from the moment I started working at Frito-Lay, I started lobbying for that international move. Knowing that this was a company that could potentially send me to Paris, to Hong Kong, to Johannesburg, to to the UK, whatever, so I I was long and loud on that, and they came to me yes, and they came to me one day and they said, well, congratulations, we have your international move, and I said, fantastic, where am I going? And they said, Dallas, Texas. Okay, <laughs> that was my reaction exactly, <laughs> and so I thought, hmm, not exactly. I understand it's different. <laughs> right. not exactly the international move I was I was contemplating. And the HR leader said, look, that's head office. We really need you to go there and spend some time and build some relationships and get known. And then we can launch you out into the international system. So I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. So two years in Dallas was the plan. And, then you know, bigger, better things. The boss I was supposed to report to when I got to Texas got moved before I got there. So I landed in Texas with no anchor coincidentally there was a tornado that killed nine people on that first day wow <laughs> so i'm lying in the fetal position on my temporary hotel room bed going oh. what have i done yeah uh, and it, it didn't get better from there i had four or five bosses in about eight months wow. and you know no clear mandate no one shepherding my career no one to reach out to to ask for help and so finally i just said you know i i think we're done and by the way while all this was happening. Bad things were happening back at home. My mother had gotten quite ill. A friend had gotten quite ill. My brother's wife and my sister were both pregnant with their first children. You mm. know, there's all kinds of things happening that kept telling me you probably shouldn't be in Dallas, Texas.
0: Nothing against Texas for anybody listening in Texas.
1: Nothing against Texas. No, I was totally fine. There were many, many great things. Just It just wasn't working out. So I resigned. They offered to move me back. I said, thanks. I think I did everything I could do in the Canadian business. So, you know, I think we're done here. So I moved back and there was this big gaping hole. And while I sorted some of the family things, I was very open to what was next, which should I get another similar job? Should I do something different? And this thing called coaching started bubbling up. Nice. It was one of those things where, you know, an article comes one day. Oh, that's interesting. An article shows up the next day. Hmm. That's great. And when it happened three days in a row, I thought, (laughs)
0: <laughs> something it's it's like when your phone is listening to you and it keeps sending you adverts for certain yes. things it's just like the
1: well that's what would be happening today right this is yeah. this is prior to to our very uh frighteningly intelligent phones but you know you're right it, you know when it happens that many times in a row apparently out of the blue it really seemed to be something that i needed to pay attention to so nice Yeah. So I investigated training programs. There weren't many choices at the time, but I chose one and jumped in and have never looked back.
0: That's amazing. And, and because you are one of those people that, you know, the people recommend you go to, I'm always fascinated by it because I am not a member of the ICF. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. consciously I went through a lot of people berating me a long while saying, well, you're coaching and you're not a member of the ICF. Why? You've got to be accredited. And we had a lot of Times where I would be sitting in pitches and people would say, "So are you ICF qualified?" and I said, "Well, no, I'm not." And it—it's for me, it was my experience of going out there and finding there's a lot of people who coach, who, in my words, would say shouldn't be coaching, yeah, you know, or were even were master coaches, mm-hmm. and I was just fundamentally underwhelmed by the capability. Of, so I'm always fascinated about a debate about what makes a good coach, what we should be looking for in there. So.
1: Well, I want to separate that question into at least a couple of parts. So uh, early on, I opted to connect with the International Coach Federation because I wanted whatever whatever came close to legitimization. Yeah. I wanted some sort of credibility. And this very early stage International Coach Federation was really the only game in town at the time. Mm-hmm. But what it was doing was uh, creating enough of a presence that if – people were researching coaching they would find the international coach federation and so i founded the chapter in my city and you know took a bit of a stand on let's if if the coaching is going to be a profession let's create it that way and put some discipline and structure around it and write a code of conduct and a and a gu- set of ethical guidelines and set about agreeing what is a coach and how do we know whether one co- ought to be called a coach And so as a result, I participated in the formation of that, the first version of the credentialing approach. Nice.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and, but far, far, far from perfect because, you know, amongst the many flaws in the coaching profession is the fact that the, what it takes to become an accredited program is pretty broad Mm. and a lot of different kinds of coaching can qualify for that. So, just because one has taken an accredited program doesn't necessarily mean one is equipped to coach in particular arenas, corporate being a great example. Yeah. They also, now this may be different now because I haven't gone deep on research and coaching organizations or coach training schools lately, but for most of the time I've been in coaching, you didn't have to get accepted into a coach program. You could just sign up and pay your money.
0: Right.
1: So without any pre-screening or filtering of who's participating in the programs and without any real criteria for graduation other than completion because Mm -hmm. for the part there now there are some programs that will actually not pass someone if they haven't delivered against whatever the criteria are but for the longest time that wasn't even true so anybody could sign up anybody could graduate interesting Therefore, you know, you didn't really know what was coming out into the world. So I've always referred to the completion of an accredited coach training program as a useful first filter.
0: Good way of putting it. Yeah.
1: So it's like I would rather not go to a dentist who hasn't gone to dentistry school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Both are equally painful sometimes. Yes. Well,
1: Exactly. But uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's no. that they are a brilliantly qualified, technically adept dentist, nor are they necessarily the dentist for me yeah but at least I know that they did the you know put a stake in the ground, they committed some time, they committed some attention and energy, somebody else was looking at their skills to say, you know we think this person knows what they're doing, so that's how I've regarded coach training and i have the the dirty little secret is that I am no longer a member of the international coaching federation yeah okay i I have not renewed my credential the last time I was asked to mm. mostly because I'm at a point where. Really, no one asks anymore. No. I mean, yeah. a, a, a client. So I distinguish between customer and client because my work is, is entirely corporate. So the customer in my parlance is the paying organization and the client is the individual. Mm. No client has ever asked, and I mean ever asked, no. about my training. Mm. The Hiring organizations ask because they need that first filter. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. They and the purchasing departments like to know that there's some qualifications and, and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So yeah, so you know, the ICF has never really done very much for non US members in terms mm. of sort of benefits and the yeah. the things that they say will come as a result of being a member. Mm. And often and on through my coaching career I have considered doing you know mentor code mentoring other coaches and offering programs to support the growth and development of other coaches and anytime you're going to do that I think you should have the membership and the credential and all of that but I'm no longer interested in doing any of that so I've just I've let it go
0: let it go <laughs> <laughs> say that. And, and what I would say on a, a positive side is, I think the ICF has changed. And I think internationally, I think it has got yes. uh, better. And I've got a lot of good colleague friends who would ch- listen here and challenge me immediately and go, Well, that's just your bias, column because you like to give advice. You know, j- joke <laughs> aside, that's, you know, and therefore Michael Bongisani, our mutual friend's book about the advice trap. The advice you know?
1: trap, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, a, and a blend of mentoring and coaching. So there's a piece in here that I know that I'm sort of, you know, voting for, for for my side. But there's, but I do think there's a piece about, I love the way you put a customer and the clients. And I think yeah. it is about that chemistry between the coach and the coachee that's so important.
1: Well, yeah. that is hugely important, but there also needs to be clarity around the boundaries of coaching. So please don't be treating mental illness and doing therapy. Yep. Ideally don't be giving advice. Now I will say that in corporate coaching, one of the associates on my company's team said long ago that uh, executive and corporate coaching are more directive than the life coaching purists would have. Yeah, They really don't like that. But sometimes a corporate coaching client just wants to be given an idea, mm. not necessarily told what to do, but could you please just give me an idea to get me started because I'm up against something and it's quite pressing. So mm. so I think that there are some differences. So for me, I mean, the International Coach Federation has played a huge role, no question, mm. added yep. tremendous. Value, no question. I've always believed that it tries to do too much for too many.
0: Mm, okay, interesting.
1: Which is in evidence when you go to a conference and find there's a huge life coaching stream and a very tiny corporate stream, or you know that sort of thing. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't. I think I think the task they've set themselves up for is virtually impossible to complete successfully.
0: Yeah. And what I love about coaching—just the title of coaching—is there's so many of my clients, and talking clients and customers in in your language, would be very keen to move into a coaching. Uh, Mm -hmm. Role and many of them do Mm -hmm. without really fully understanding a lot of the time what it's going to entail and what it's going to take. So, and I always think there's this lovely, you know, almost a um, I don't know what the word is a tension between most organizations don't coach. Yeah. They tell. And then they want to get outside to coach, whereas probably the biggest benefit would be to be inside and coaching.
1: Well, and it's that coaching culture, coaching approach idea that yeah. very few organizations do really well. That again, referencing our mutual friend, Michael Bungay-Stanier, his whole you know body of intellectual property is really focused on helping organizations shift how people yeah. lead and create a more coaching style culture, which, you know, you and I both know is a more sustainable kind of capacity building approach to managing and leading. Yeah. But, it's not perceived that way. It's perceived as taking more time and therefore being problematic when things just need to get done. Oh, I should just tell them what to do because that's the quickest way. Well, if you tell them what to do, guess what happens next time they have a question?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> right? They yeah. come that, right? <laughs>
0: Coming back. And I yeah. think it's Casey Carter, uh, you know, another person is in our connection who has that lovely expression about the thing, a Speedy rabbit, you know. Yes. So there's a lot of us, and including myself, is a speedy rabbit. So when Michael said, "I can coach you in ten minutes or less, or teach you to coach," I'm like, "Yes, please. I want yes. that ten minutes or less." So yeah, <laughs> feeding yeah, the speedy and,
1: rabbit. And I know I've had lots of conversations with coaching providers, you know, big, bigger coaching companies that that have have a big intake process and a big sort of series of deep, deep deep, probing conversations that are the the setup to an executive coaching engagement. And I have yet to meet a client who's really interested in doing that, who really wants to create the space for that, um, at least not at the beginning. And so I think the quicker we can support a client to accelerate, you know, to try some different things, to make some different choices, to learn something, to stand a little more strongly on their own two feet, I think... Mm that's where we start to really build credibility and add value and, and gain trust.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, it, you know, when I first got into coaching, it was the large organizations like Mark Suspension in the UK, you would got to coach when you were in trouble. So you got a yes. coach to, And it was either to move you out of the organization or to correct the, the fault rather than actually for me, I can't tickle myself is the expression I use. So I need, to, <laughs> I need somebody to come in and you know, uh, allow me to see <laughs> some stuff that I couldn't see for myself.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a a friend of mine named Charlie Gilkey. He's a, a really interesting guy. He's a productivity expert and uh, has done a PhD or close to it in, I think, Buddhist philosophy or something. And he was a military right. logistics expert. You would really enjoy him on this podcast. Mm. Ah, but Charlie has yeah. Charlie has an expression that I love and I invoke often. You can't read the label from inside the jar. <sighs>
0: I love that yeah. And
1: there is your coach. Right? Yeah. And so I think that is that is our job is to you know be outside the jar to bring that objectivity and to bring the willingness to challenge and and, and all of that. So mm. can't tickle myself is really the same kind of idea. but yeah. with regard to the, the use of coaching as a, as a corrective measure, yeah. since since the very first moment I stepped into this profession, I have refused to do that work. Yeah. I absolutely don't agree that that's an appropriate use for a coach. I know that the reputation of coaching has struggled because of that common application, but it's, it's just not money well spent for anybody. It almost ever works. Yeah, and I would say the only times I've taken on something that looks like corrective sort of coaching, it's because there's an executive sponsor who is an absolutely passionate advocate for that person. Yeah. There was one client I worked with, I was, I was a few years into, to building my practice as a coach and I was hired by a VP who had a director who was their supply chain guy. And he was, he was really, really rough with people off Mm. color and, you know, all sorts of really, you know, just, just a very, very difficult guy to kind of have in the organization culturally and brilliant at what he was doing. Yeah, VP was clear. I want him here. Mm. I believe in him. He has tremendous expertise and capability that we need. And there's so much noise around his behavior with other people that it's becoming impossible for me to keep him. So can we please figure out whether or not we can fix it? Because I really want him here. And if he makes changes, I will be out in front, you know, loud and proud supporting mm. him and giving, getting people to give him a second chance. So nice. that's a situation where I would take on something that, feels corrective. In this case, it was a complete lack of awareness of the impact he was having.
0: Yeah. And what I love about that, when we were doing our original work for a project called PI2, which is our leadership model, and, and a lot of it was based on emotional intelligence. And I recruited somebody at the time whose husband and son both had Asperger's. Um, and she said, ah, emotional intelligence, I just I can't get it because I live my life in a way where her husband and son just don't recognize the terms or the analogy about emotional intelligence and therefore we moved a lot of our work to habits you know practices and habits Mm -hmm. and they could see that if they did something there was an impact in front of them allowing so so i think there's a piece for me and i I don't know i'd love your views in this i think there's a shift sometimes in the way that coaching is stuff we're starting to understand more about the brain the, Mm -hmm. the spectrum even in teaching my wife's a teacher and how that impacts on coaching. Because in theory, that could be seen as counseling. But I think sometimes it's about, you know, coaching to get better practices. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do. I think you have to really take a look at where the client is mm. and what they're capable of. Mm. Which doesn't mean defaulting to their lowest level of capability, but it does mean stretching them in the context of where they can begin to stretch. Yeah. And, and again, building that trust and, you know, growing some new muscles, right? Mm. You don't yeah. cycle Monbon the first day you get on a bike.
0: Yeah. Oh, my favorite mountain. We are just talking about that, weren't we? Yeah. So <laughs> getting on there. Yeah. Although there are a few people who do that and they go, right, I'm well, taking on Monbon II to start with.
1: Yeah. And we all know how that works out. <laughs> exactly.
0: A wet rag if it was me on the side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> I would blame the bike, but yeah.
1: Of course. Yeah,
0: of course. So, so where's your coaching going? Because you said you haven't, you know, ICF, you left behind, and you're moving towards a different journey. Where's your journey going now? What are you doing?
1: Well, uh, let's answer that in two buckets. So, I have a company; it's called Parachute Executive Coaching. I have about a dozen coaches, and I tap my global network frequently. And I have positioned the company so it plays in between the very large consulting companies and the independents who. Right you know, don't necessarily have scale or process and that sort of thing. So um, we're thriving, we're, we continue to grow, we've, we have a steady stream of wonderful corporate business, we tend not to work with the very, very, very big companies, because we do like to be in environments where there's a lot of a lot of receptiveness and a lot of nimbleness, we do a lot of work with startups. So, uh, but yeah, really fantastic team of coaches. Mm -hmm. And Nice diverse team, and uh, we're doing some great work, and we have a lot of fun. So, uh, we had a very funny moment. I have a monthly associate call, and we have a new associate on the team who uh, fairly recently resigned from a from a big CEO job, mm-hmm. and you know took a training course and and became a coach and so on. And we were doing some work as a team on values, and the particular framework that we were working with. This coach was confronted with the fact that humor was a strong value, but it didn't appear to be very much of his lived experience. And his reflection was that when he became as in his his words, a high-end executive coach, he thought he needed to be serious. Hmm. And so wasn't trading on humor as much as he might have. And we're all as a group we're saying, but you were a CEO. So you were more comfortable with humor as a CEO than you are as an executive coach. We're we're confused.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is fascinating.
1: <laughs> I know, but it was also funny because as he said that the whole group of us the 12 of us were we're looking at him saying, "Have you met us?" <laughs> <laughs> Because the banter and the joking and so on amongst the associates is hilarious. We also work hard at learning from each other. And so Mm -hmm. as a group, we are raising the bar of our collective knowledge and experience. And we brainstorm, we solve problems together, that sort of thing. So it's a wonderful group of people Mm -hmm. and excellent, excellent coaches. And um, my job increasingly is to feed them great work. Yeah. Because I'm the one with the marketing background and comfortable with the new business conversations and been around long enough to have you know some good connections and a decent reputation. So, so yeah, so the business continues. Um, I still do one-on-one coaching, nice. but the beauty of having a dozen associates is that when new business comes in, if I don't feel like it's a good fit for me or if I don't have capacity, I know – people that I can hand it off to. So so I get to pick and choose, which is the best possible place to be.
0: So <laughs> what what's your flavor then? What what you love doing? Cuz I always and I know it's a difficult question, but what's your flavor?
1: No, actually, uh, again, it's Charlie Gilkey that I mentioned a minute ago. He and I were chatting a few years ago and he asked me that same question, like who are the mm. clients that really light you up? And I thought for a minute and my response was I want to work with people who believe they're up to something big in the world. Mm. Now they might be leading a big organization. They might just have a big idea that they're committed to and working on putting out into the world. But it's that conviction that there's something that I'm here to do nice. and important, and I won't, you know, I won't rest until I've until I've got it done. I also must work with people who are, and this is we as a company have talked about this a lot. We are committed to working with leaders who are first and foremost committed committed to being good human beings.
0: Nice.
1: And for me, that also means they take care of themselves, they take care of the relationships and the people that they care about, and then they understand who they are in terms of business and leadership. So a bit of a longish answer, but people who believe they're up to something big in the world and people who really do want to be good humans.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and I think I've filtered my answers to that question as we've gone through, because I used to say, I only want to work with people who, who want to do significant change in, in yes. them, and I committed to it. Yeah. But actually, I've, I've grown more and more to understand that actually some of the people who who don't see that or don't see their own potential are actually just as valuable and rewarding as a coach
1: yeah. to
0: suddenly get them to explore stuff. And they're going off and oh. doing stuff. Yeah. You just think, whoa, okay.
1: I know. Yeah. Oh, when the light bulb goes on and then oh. their their potential just explodes. It's so yes. wonderful.
0: It is. I think that's what that's what feeds most of the people who that I talk to who want to come out and do coaching is they want yes. that every day. I think the some the, the piece for me sometimes it's just about getting the balance of the work and it's a bit like saying well my passion is cooking so I'm going to become a chef and then you get in the kitchen you go well okay <laughs> I'm doing this seven days a week no this is not you know so it's it's finding that balance and blend isn't it of the the, the work it I'm is. Doing.
1: Yeah. It is. And yeah, you and I both know people that have that have made that choice. I remember having a conversation with a writer friend of mine who was mm. a brilliant writer in the advertising sort of marketing communications realm. And I asked him about writing that great novel. And he said, are you kidding? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not the slightest bit interested in writing on my evenings and weekends. <laughs> so, which is too bad. It's tragic. But I feel yeah. like for me, coaching has never been work. Mm. Like ever. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I'm still in it so many, many, many years later because I'm still fascinated by the human beings and I'm learning new things about people and about businesses and every day, so um mm. yeah, never been dull
0: yeah hey, uh, and we've we've been wrestling with a new branding and piece, mm. and we one of the expressions we had was how to amplify the human in leadership yeah you know, so it was mm. one of them and i you know that was that really resonated for me because I think a lot of the societal problems that are are happening are because of that, so we we started to work it and then I read a book which was about the old Blacks from New Zealand, and they talked uh-huh. about planting trees that you will never sit under. So I then discovered this <gasps> seven-generational philosophy about – you know, these tribes that have uh, seven generations lost, Native American Indians who have seven generations lost. So I love that. So there's a piece for me that we are getting down to, you know, to Jacqueline Novogratz's piece, which is a manifesto yes. for society and societal change. And I think we are getting there. And I think your human being is important in that. Yeah.
1: I think it's a non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it has to be, and I think we're increasingly seeing what happens when that's not a priority, when that's not mm-hmm. the moral code of the individual, and then uh, by extension of the organization. And it yeah. does start at the top. I mm-hmm. mean, I believe you—you you can create change from the middle and even from the bottom, but real mm-hmm. change in an organization—and let's face it, like it or not, companies, organizations are the engine. They—they yeah. they just are, and unless they're working well, not much else really gets to thrive so mm. yes i want to support startups and founders and small business and entrepreneurship and all of that that's that's critical and growing but if our larger organizations aren't working and in fact if people are unhappy and sick as mm. a result of working in these large organizations that's a huge problem and we have to fix that
0: yeah and i i love our friend michael and his new book because there's that beautiful part at the end which is when he talks about his cleft palate and his mm-hmm. operation and and there's that moment that, that I'd never heard of this, but the, the Japanese art of repairing pottery and how it's more valuable than the, you know, the original. I just, I love that concept because that's what we do a lot of the times. Yeah. The,
1: to... the Kintsugi.
0: Kintsugi. Yes.
1: Yeah. I my, the name of my math, the informal name of my mastermind group. We are Kintsugi. Ah,
0: fantastic. I love <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. And that's for me is the exploration pieces also as I go more and more into the podcast and the work and the coaching um, I get every day it's almost like I bring something something from that you know whether it's Casey Carter and his four levels of permission to to chill and patient permission to feel the feels etc I, I love that. But I I'm crunching a lot of books, I'm crunching a lot of thinking. And I, I wanted to come back to where your thinking is. Because you've written two books, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. thinking about going to France. Again, we've got that connection, love of France. <laughs> yeah. To 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 think about your writing. Where is where's it going your writing? Where's it been and where's it going? Maybe give the,
1: the listeners Oh, my the gosh. Well that. the first book I wrote, I credit again Michael Bunke Staniers, but big, big mm-hmm. common thread years ago as I was hemming and hawing about should I write a book I don't know I think I'm supposed to because that's what you're supposed to do when you're a coach and you're building a professional services business and brand and so on and Michael had a connection with a couple of women who were starting a new publishing imprint that was mm-hmm. largely online based
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know he and I had been talking about this idea I had for a, for a possible book that maybe one day when my kids were a little older I would maybe consider writing mm-hmm. and he me with this new publishing entity and they said, great, we like your idea. Can you have a first chapter to us by X date? And by the way, we'll look at publishing it at X date. And I thought, well,
0: <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I better get it done. And really, it was only with that kind of deadline pressure that I got that first one done. Yeah, yeah. Although the moral of that particular story of that time in my life was it's probably not a good idea to get a divorce, renovate a house and write a book in the same year.
0: That's an interesting combination, <laughs> <laughs> which came it first. It was a bit much, yeah,
1: it was a bit much. It was a bit of a, you know, it was Boom. a bit of a, yeah, yeah mm. exactly. So they've all bumped up against each other. So having got that done, and the first book is called "Complete Executive, The 10-Step System to Great Leadership Performance. Really a collection of the habits and practices that I had observed in the leaders I'd worked with who managed to figure out that combination of health and happiness and success.
0: Okay. Nice.
1: And that's really my stealth agenda with all of the clients I work with is to work with them to get to that place of health and happiness and success. You know, I often tell my associates that the companies don't hire hire us to help their people be happy, but there's no chance they're going to be successful unless they're happy I and agree. They get happy unless they're healthy. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So anyway, so that was the first book. And having got that done, it was fantastic. Perfect. you know check that box move on Um, new houses
0: built separate
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah all the things um and then as time wore on so my personal story around what ended up being a divorce the short version of it was that my kids dad and I had been splitting things economically since the kids well since we first moved in together and when the kids were four and five, three and four, something like that, young, he announced that he um, had invested all of his money in taking his business a new direction and it wasn't working and he didn't have any money that month Hmm. or the next month or the month after that or the month after that Hmm. or the month. So as I was suddenly gifted with the full financial responsibility for a household that Hmm. had been absolutely set up and designed to be a two-income venture. Yeah. Plus, with young kids, I was carrying most of that load. And my coaching practice was, I guess at this point, five years old, something like that. So still right. relatively new. It was really, it really felt like I was carrying a whole lot more than I felt comfortable with. And that was different than what I'd signed up for. Mm. And as I handling all of this, but also sort of processing how I felt about it, I coined this phrase, the accidental alpha.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, because that's what I felt like. I am the alpha in all of this. I'm handling it all. I'm making all the decisions. I'm, you know, carrying all the big responsibilities. But that was not not the way I thought it was going. Not what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. And the accidental piece of that was really the tension. You know, fine, mm-hmm. I, can, I can be a rock star. I can earn the money. I can do all the things. But I can't do everything. Yeah and but it was but pretty much everything had landed on my shoulders and so and i love a good alliteration <laughs>
0: <laughs> so <Don't> we all <laughs> right any
1: any writer i know can say oh, can relate exactly. to that so um, anyway so i coined this phrase this accidental alpha and i started playing with it and i would talk to people about it and anytime i mentioned that idea to another woman Nine times out of 10, I got a very rapid, oh, my gosh, I totally get that. That's me. Yeah, yeah And, yeah. you know, sometimes it was a woman whose husband had passed quite suddenly mm. dramatically and was, you know, left with the responsibility. Sometimes it was a woman who had never partnered, but had mm. always thought they might and yeah. was now realizing, oh, no, hang on. This might be the way it is forever. Um, mm. So there are lots of ways people would end up in this accidental mm. alpha place. and. So, you know, I've played with the idea. i experimented with some blogging. I, you know, talked to a few people, did some research, played with it. But it, I kept putting it to a side, mo- mostly because I was still in the pain. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so one of my great mentors, Michael Port, who runs an organization called Heroic Public Speaking, he has often said, you shouldn't be trying to, to heal your own pain from the stage. You know, if you're going to take the stage, you don't want the audience to be worried about you. So you need to be coming from a place of progress or solution or healing or, you know, and so I was still in this. And so I didn't Mm. feel like anything I might write about or create while I was in that place was going to be terribly useful or healthy. So I kept putting it aside, but every once in a while it would pop up. And then I was in this public speaking program and I was working on something, something very logically business oriented, a, a talk that I was going to give that I figured would be great for all those leadership conferences. Yeah. And the writing coach I was working with, I was delivering a portion of the speech in one of our little practice sessions. And she said, I'm not buying it. I said, what do you mm. mean you're not buying? It? She said, I just don't think you care about this topic. Wow. Wow. I know. He said, well, no, I really do care. It's like, you know, my business depends on these sorts of things. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. Sure, I get it. Your business is fine. What do you really want to talk about?
0: Yeah, I love it.
1: And I shared this idea of the accidental alpha. Mm. And this is now a few years later. Um, mm-hmm. So much has changed and been resolved. And she helped me actually figure out how to talk about this accidental alpha idea, but with a coaching framework underneath it. Lovely. Which made it feel of service.
0: Mm.
1: right it made me feel like i was bringing a solution to the world Mm. and so my little pandemic project in 2020 Mm. was i wrote the accidental alpha woman a guide Mm. to thrive when life feels overwhelming
0: and can i just say as a man a white heterosexual man on this when you said accidental alpha i sometimes feel that myself as well
1: i have male friends who have said the same thing yeah yeah I, I i understand that it is absolutely not solely a female experience
0: mm, It's a it's a but it but it says something to me you know i'm a two sisters, mother raised us, dad was a doctor but all away now two yep. daughters wife daughters even the dog female you know they <laughs> just, it just it's it seems to be and therefore but i but I do find when I've had business partners who've been male. They want to take the alpha role. A the mm-hmm. female. They've. It's been a tension uh, between us, and I've sometimes taken that role without really wanting it. So it's interesting. Lovely framework and alliteration. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, and, yes, have the alliteration. Um, the the framework that the book is built on is based on the word receive, mm. because for my experience, the thing that would have helped me through some of my darkest times um, more readily would have been the ability to receive, to receive help, to receive input, to receive support, to receive intuitive messages from the universe to, you know, and I tell a number of personal stories in the book. So, Mm. so, you know, you think about first book, very, very business focused second book, personal with a coaching underpinning. Yeah. If there's a third, and I now have to consider that maybe there's a third, it, would be a much more personal reflection on what I've done with my life. So I am a single parent of two men Mm -hmm. who are 22 and 23 now, Mm -hmm. and they are happy, healthy, smart, strong, independent, well-resourced, responsible, kind, loving human beings. They are wonderful. And they are on their own now. They both live on their own. They're living their own lives. They're doing Mm -hmm. beautifully. And this gives me an opening an opportunity Mm -hmm. to make some choices about how I live my life which to this point I really haven't had yeah and the first thing I did was in August of 2021 well let me scroll back there's a longer story attached to this which I won't bore you with but uh just over a year ago so I I was born and raised in Toronto Canada living Mm -hmm. in Toronto for most of my adult life except for that little sojourn in Texas (laughs)
0: So I'm I'm hearing the Dallas theme tune coming in there and then going back out.
1: I know. Really, Dallas, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're just not for me. Uh, And I made some great friends in Dallas. One of my Mm. very best friends I met when I was Dallas, which we now regard as the reason I went there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Serendipitous.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, through the pandemic, as many of us were sitting reflecting on our lives, it struck me that I had no reason to be living in a big city anymore. I had no reason mm. to be living in the city of Toronto anymore because the reason I had been there had been, well, business, but which is mm. now all being done virtually. So take that off the table. And my kids, who as long as I'm a phone call or a text message away and mm. willing to e-transfer money. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, bank of mom never
1: ends.
0: the bank of mom never ends. Thankfully,
1: yeah. it's, a, it's a significantly reduced load these days, which is wonderful. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so it just sort of struck me. Oh, wait a minute. I have some options now. I have some choices. Mm. Yeah. And I ended up buying a 114-year-old, little bit dilapidated home on the very east coast of Canada in a little town called Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. Nice. And I moved into it last August. Mm. So, uh, you know, and this is, so the fact that I did that, that alone has got some people's heads spinning. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> what? For me,
0: it's, a, it's appealing. I'm going, yeah, I'm, right? I'm going I way. Know, yeah.
1: I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's smaller, cheaper, friendlier, prettier, safer. It's, you know, it's so many things, Yeah. but yeah. So it was like, Oh, I, I've never really lived anywhere else. And I've always loved this sort of period of architecture and always wanted mm. to fix up the, you know, cute little house and all that so anyways bought this house moved into it i'm now living in a very small town in uh Mm. in the east on the east coast of canada and i've referred to it as having tipped my life a half a country eastward Hmm. which i think is a very logical first step toward tipping it an ocean further eastward okay and living in the place i really enjoy most in the world which is france
0: and tell me why because i'm I'm a big Uh, france fan so
1: Well, you can tell me, I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you why, if you tell me why. Yeah. So, the first time in France was right after a big personal kind of inflection point when I was about 30, and I just, you know, I did a bike trip through Provence, which is where I first encountered Mont Ventoux, Mm. and spent the last few days of the trip in Paris for the first time, and. I fell in love with it. We had a troubled beginning. I got lost walking my first night and you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it didn't start well, but I just I just was captivated by it in so many ways. The light, mm. and the people, culture and the, you know, all the things. And I, and the even though all of that is sort of the the conventional list of why people like Paris and, and France more broadly, I feel different when I'm there.
0: Yeah,
1: It's I do I, I feel Uh, more open, I feel more content, more peaceful, more curious, more inspired. Mm. And uh, I've traveled quite a bit in my life. And I'm very, very grateful and um, feel fortunate to have been able to do that. But I keep coming back. Yeah, keep coming back to France. Mm. So uh, that I can't be any more specific than I feel different when I'm there. And I've met beautiful people there. And Mm. uh, I like the life there, the focus on community and experiences and food and beauty and all of that mm. so why do you like it so much
0: i, I like it because it's tensions uh, you know one of the thing is a uh, france uh, you know i've got a few friends who would say france is great apart from the french and i'm saying well the mm. Fr- france wouldn't be france without the french and, right and and for me, that's, so what are the French? And a bit like, you know, somebody says, "Well, oh, the, the English. There's a great book on the English that's written. It's, so, what are the English? Well, our number one dish is chicken tikka masala. Yeah. And <laughs> if you look at our history, it's mostly involving Vikings and everything yes. else. And and so it's the same with France. It's, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you go to the south of France and um, the August period, and they go, oh, les Parisiens," you know, the, the Parisians are coming, and it's almost like they'll spit on the ground because yeah. – they, they don't like the prisons. They're entitled. It's a bit like people outside London. Outside of London, so They're uh, not very friendly. Know, right? you know, yeah. so, that, so there's that contrast between that. And I love the social. So I, I love the fact in a country that a strike can close everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's frustrating and everything at the same time. But at least they have a cause. At least they, uh, they
1: love a good protest. Oh they my gosh! Le greve,
0: you know, so, you know, you'd you'd come back from being abroad, and somebody who says there's a greve, and uh, you think, okay, that means I'm going to be landing at Charles de Gaulle Airport and not being able to get yep. home the direct way, and I'm <laughs> right. going to be and they say, isn't that frustrating? And I'm like, well, yeah, in one way, but you know, even just their food, their cooking, the oh, the the language you know everything sounds better in french it, it is really a bit is. like you know, italian and so so yeah. for me I, i've got a passion about that but i think it's because of the tensions and yes. i think that's how i've lived my life tensions between freedom but responsibility other things yes. in there and i think
1: well i also think that given the history there's a different kind of appreciation for what they do have yeah yeah. you know and i and i and i value that i really believe that's an important perspective to have and i don't know that that's as true on my current side of the atlantic so no yeah, yeah. so anyway so that's the the forming personal plan and nice. uh, starting to i'm starting to try and write the stories from my life that i think have pointed me that way yeah. and so as an example my maternal grandfather was Who's a mining engineer, but he was part of a military group in World War II called the Royal Canadian Engineers. And yeah. they were the crazy guys who mm. were building tunnels and, you know, doing, right? And so yeah. and he, he spent some time in France and in Belgium when in the war and had some stories and, you know, some pictures and so on. And so I remember listening to some of his experiences. And then he mm. and my grandma who are my travel role models, they went on to travel and they always spent a fair bit of time in France. And so... Yeah. I've got a framed picture that was on their wall mm. through, through my childhood of, you know, when you're walking along the Seine and there's all the artists and the bookstalls and so on. Well, when they were there shortly after he had returned from the war, so it would have been in the 50s, mm. they bought this sketch of mm. the Auneuf and the Seine from one of the sellers along the Seine and they brought it home and had it framed and I have it. Nice. Yeah. I know. So there's just you know there's all kinds of little little moments.
0: You know, I just think journal, uh, Les Miserables, everything else, the history, yeah, and, and I love the also the intellect, uh, left bank, right bank, uh, all of that of Paris is just fantastic. So I think it is just you can't you can't create something in my mind beautiful unless you mix
1: different. But uh, beauty is the contrast, yeah. right? Be- beauty, is. beauty is in perspective of something else beauty is not a standalone thing I I don't believe no
0: I don't believe either so So. this has just been an amazing conversation Kara. I could talk (laughs) well now we're on France literally we could just go on and on and on (laughs) and share and I would love people to to understand how they might get in contact hear more about your work because you have been an influence in so many other people's career and I can't wait to read your new book yeah but it just if they want to get in contact with you, how would they do that?
1: Probably the easiest is through my company website, which is parachuteexecutivecoaching.com. Yeah. And I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. at yeah. I, think it's, I think it's Karen Wright Coach on LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, brilliant.
1: So, yeah.
0: it's It's been a real pleasure to finally get a chance to meet you um, and to get into your story. And thank you for sharing it all.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real delight.
0: So that was Karen Wrights. I could have talked to her for hours. And I think, you know, love of Paris, love of coaching, uh, the love of writing, but the depth that she goes to, and also just her explanation about the people she wants to work with, almost the purpose that she holds in there is is so much in, in line with mine that, uh, you know, they talk about you shouldn't listen to your own echo chamber, but there's a piece in here that We can learn a lot from people like Karen in terms of the approach that she's taking um, to her life, to her coaching, and therefore to the stories she can tell us. So delighted you could hear her, delighted you could get an introduction if you haven't heard from her before, and I'll look forward to welcoming you on another episode of Leadership Tales Podcast very shortly.